I'm Dr. Roddy Brett. I'm Associate Professor of International Relations at the University of St. Andrews, and I direct the Master's Programme in the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies here at the University. At the moment, I'm in St. Andrews, and I'm speaking down the line to Sergio Jaramillo. Sergio, if you'd like to present yourself. Thank you, Roddy. Good morning. Uh, my name is Sergio Jaramillo. I am currently the Colombian ambassador to the European Union and to Belgium in Brussels. And I was until August of last year, for about six or seven years, the High Commissioner for Peace of the Colombian government. Sergio, it's great to talk to you again. I think you and I first met at Oxford when you came to give a very interesting conference, actually on the peace process in around 2016, was it? 2015? 15, I think yeah, that was, yes. In 2015. And of course, that was when the peace process hadn't come to an end. We're going to converse about a series of issues. Of course, we're going to think about the peace process. But before that, I'd like to take you back. You've had an incredibly wide experience working around issues of conflict, of justice, of peace, of violence in Colombia and, and elsewhere, as well as having studied in a lot of very interesting places. So for a long time, I was a kind of Chekhovian um, eternal student. I went to university in Canada and Toronto in the UK at Oxford and Cambridge, and later in, for many years in Heidelberg in Germany, lived in a few other countries in Europe. I had an interest in languages, so I spent some time in France and some time in Russia. And then went back to Colombia, started working for the foreign ministry, found myself involved in the diplomatic side of the peace process that was going on in the year 2000. Found myself at the embassy in Paris. And from there, the then ambassador brought me back to Colombia to work at the Ministry of Defense. So that was in 2002. So I worked on national security issues and strategy at the Ministry of Defense, left that and became the director of a very interesting think tank in Colombia that's probably the leading think tank on conflict resolution called Ideas for Peace. Interesting because it was supported by the business community during the peace process of that's known in Colombia as El Caguan. That for me was very important because I had about three years during which I had a lot of time to think about the issues and reflect and write and try and help as well, naturally. Although then there was no, strictly speaking, no peace process going on, except for the demoralization of the paramilitary militias, if you can call that a peace process. And then our current president, President Santos, was named Minister of Defense and asked me to be one of his deputies. So I spent about three and a half years as Deputy Minister of Defense, dealing with issues of strategy, of international relations, of intelligence, and also especially of human rights, producing a new human rights policy and working a lot on the practical side of those issues, which is very important, but also challenging in the middle of a conflict. Mm. Was that specifically for the Ministry of Defense or was that generally yes. for the government? No, I was Deputy Minister of Defense, and this was a human rights policy for the military, which in an internal armed conflict is extremely important to have. And at the same time, I also worked very hard on issues of what we called consolidation, which was how to actually get the state working in these peripheral areas of Colombia. Security was certainly an end to the extent that obviously security is a great public good, but it's also a means to an end, which is to enable these state institutions to work in certain regions of Colombia where they hadn't had a presence. 
So I worked quite hard on that, and we ran a quite a successful pilot program in a particularly difficult region. Then I left the government in 2009. I resigned because the president then was President Uribe, and he decided to introduce a, yet again, because he'd already done in 2006, a constitutional amendment to allow himself to stay in power, which I thought was quite against the rules, but also the spirit of what we were trying to do, which was precisely to reestablish the rule of law. So I resigned, and when President Santos won the elections and became president in 2010, called me back into government and created a new position, as was quite popular in those days, a kind of U.S.-style national security advisor, more or less at the same time that the U.K. did that and Spain as well. And so that was my official position from September of 2010. But in fact, I was given at the same time the legal powers of this position that exists in the Colombian government called the Peace Commissioner. That is the person that is legally allowed to seek out and talk to um, armed groups and try to negotiate with them. So in 2010, I had two hats, one as National Security Advisor and another one that virtually nobody knew about as Peace Commissioner. And that's when the whole thing started. I'd like to pick up on a point that you made there. You've seen different phases of the conflict in Colombia, of course, with the FARC and with other armed groups. What changed to permit in 2010 Santos in his inauguration speech to say that he had the keys to peace in his pocket and that his government wouldn't be averse under the right conditions to negotiate with the guerrilla? In 2002, clearly there's a collapse of the peace negotiations in the Kaiwan. So how is it that by 2010 and of course publicly 2012, we get this possibility of negotiating with the FARC? Well, the first thing that changed naturally is that President Santos won the presidency and that he had himself made that decision. And without him, nothing would have happened. He really surprised everyone by making that announcement. Now, at the same time, for those of us who had been following or been part of the conflict on one side or the other, on the security effort, at least to me, it was quite obvious by about 2000 and eight, that strictly speaking, strategically, the whole thing was over, but that it didn't mean that it was going to stop very soon and that it was the right time to find a way out, that the incentives were probably in place to find a way out. It's very hard for the stars to align, but it's also very hard to build a solution. People often think that it's all a question of the so-called right conditions or what they call the ripe moment. I'm not entirely persuaded by that because I think the negotiations create a logical themselves. Apart from that, my argument, which I made last year at a conference I gave at the University of Chicago, is that you can have a very ripe moment and yet no solution whatsoever if you're not able to build a bridge or a path or use them as you like or a house. You really have to construct something out of nothing. It needs a lot of planning and a lot of thought. No guerrilla movement, least of all the FARC, were still, even though they were much diminished, they were still very large and proud. If you look at the figures just from the disarmament process of last year, you have about 7,000 armed combatants plus 3,000 active militias who were with them in the field. They handed over a massive arsenal including not just personal weapons for each one of them, which is very unusual for a disarmament process, 
and um, AKs and so forth, but really hundreds and hundreds of mortars. And anyway, they were a very well-armed guerrilla still and a very proud one. So the fact that strategically they may have been cornered or even defeated, it doesn't mean that they were going to give up under any circumstances. Just to clarify, you said strategically speaking around 2008, in your words, the whole thing was over. So do you think that the FARC had been strategically defeated? I think so, yes. I think so in the sense that it had made perfectly clear to them that there was no path to power whatsoever and that as time passed, they were losing more and more of their men and their commanders and especially territory and population. But that is not the same thing as they giving themselves up, which they would have never done. That's a myth that some people in the political opposition have spread in Colombia. That would have never happened. What I think President Santos saw was the right moment where you could put together what I would call a win-win solution. There was a moment where you could see that a properly done negotiation was probably the best solution for all. And that's what we try to do. So that takes us to your engagement in and participation in the peace process. So could you talk a little bit about your role during the negotiations or the peace talks, however you'd want to describe it? Well, there were different faces to this. There was, let's say, there was first a quite a long, what I would call, preparation phase, which took about a year and a half during which we used a back channel to prepare a first secret meeting, which we had agreed to by December of 2010. The FARC suggested through our back channel that we have a meeting between two so-called plenipotentiaries from the government and the FARC. And we agreed to that, as President Santos said, so long as the meeting was direct, secret, and happened abroad. And then it took a very, very long time to agree to the conditions for that meeting, especially because the FARC were very worried about their own security and needed security guarantees. So we spent all of 2011 mostly through our back channel, but occasionally sending people out to uh, secret meetings to discuss the details of how that would work. That was the first phase. A very important detail about that is that as we were preparing this, really very much in secret, Nobody knew about this. On the government side, it was fundamentally the president and myself for a long time that were managing this. Towards the end of that preparation phase, the commander of the FARC, Alfonso Cano, fell in a military operation. And that was a critical moment because the FARC could have said, no, 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 we're not going to go on with this. And yet they decided to keep the meeting and go ahead, which showed a certain amount of resolve on their part on actually trying to do something even though they had, for them, this very, very serious loss. In fact, the man who became then the commander of the FARC, Timochenko, and this is a fact that is really not public, was uh, one of the two people who had been designated by the FARC secretariat to come and meet us. And we then met them for the first time in February of 2012. And I'll just give you a little bit of the chronology first, and then we can fill the details. The first decision we made was that the secret talks would be held in Cuba, or rather the first thing that we agreed with the FARC through these methods I described. We did not want this meeting to happen in Colombia, as we said. We did not want it to happen in Venezuela either, which is where the FARC wanted things to happen. The only place we agreed on was Cuba. Once we agreed on that, we also thought it was good to have another country involved to support this first phase and we looked out for a country that we thought had experience, was serious and professional. 
we naturally quickly came upon the idea of the Norwegians, suggested it to the FARC in 2011, and very slowly they agreed to it. And actually one Norwegian delegate did go to one of his very early preparatory meetings. The other international actor, let's say, though, was involved from very early on and that actually played a huge and rather um, under-recognized role in the peace process was the International Committee of the Red Cross that played a huge role because it was thanks to them and to the trust they had from all sides that we managed to move the FARC members around. And if you think what was been going on in Colombia, extremely serious operations against the top FARC leadership it was natural that the FARC were extremely nervous about being moved around anywhere, let alone getting on a helicopter that uh, they didn't really know what it was. ICRC were present all through the beginning and until the very end played a huge role in the peace process. So the preparatory phase ends in February of 2012 when we meet them for the first time in a safe house in Havana. And then we end up doing almost six months of secret talks, uh, which had never been tried in Colombia. Very difficult to do because we are a completely media-mad country with very aggressive and sharp journalists and especially on the radio, very, very competitive media environment. And yet we managed to do this almost without being noticed. Towards the end, there were rumors, but we had to go to the most incredible extremes as flying out in tiny little beachcraft planes over the Caribbean so we wouldn't be seen in the main airports and refueling almost on a rock in the Cayman Islands and that kind of thing. But it was extremely important because the secret talks allowed us to reach a framework agreement that really worked, not just as the cliche goes, as the roadmap, but I would say more almost like a contract so that when the president goes public and surprises the country in 2012 in September by announcing that he's starting a public peace process, he does this with an agreement in his hand that can tell everyone clearly what this is going to be about and also what it is not going to be about because we had a very clear objective. For the first time, we had a language that the FARC in the past had never accepted, which was this was about ending the conflict or the armed conflict rather than speaking more generally about peace. And it had a very clear, precise agenda of five substantive points and one procedural one. So you could say, this is what we're doing, and from that you can drive what we're not doing. So the government knew what it was getting into, the FARC knew what it was getting into, and the Colombians knew what it was getting into. And I think that was very important to gain the trust of the public at the beginning, but especially to make sure that the process, once it was launched in public, because the whole world changes once the whole thing is public naturally, because you have a lot of attention, a lot of pressure, and you naturally have also a responsibility in a democracy to inform and say what it is you're doing. And that takes up a lot of the energy which was brilliantly done by the new head of our delegation, which is Umberto de la Calle, who came in at exactly the right time. So the fact that we already had this solid rails, I think, is what to a significant extent kept the whole thing going. And a methodology, which was the way of working together we had developed during the secret talks. It's actually very unusual that a democratic government manages to negotiate without intermediaries, without a mediator, directly with a guerrilla, and actually draft an agreement that ended up being something of a monster of 300-plus pages. Yeah. Could you speak a little bit to the challenges that you faced as negotiators? Well, there are all kinds of challenges, naturally. 
But the first one I would mention is that you need to create a kind of space within which you can negotiate. And by that, I mean you need to have a minimal shared narrative, which doesn't mean that you believe in the same things by any means, or even that you always understand the same thing by something, but that there is agreement about what it is you're doing and that there's a way of explaining it that it's coherent. So what we said is, look, in our view, this is about ending the armed conflict in Colombia. Peace is something we need to build once we've put an end to the armed conflict. This may sound like the most obvious thing in the world, but in fact, there's something the FARC had never accepted. They had never accepted to put into an agenda the a DDR or a disarmament process was going to be a point to be discussed, which they did in the secret talks. And equally importantly, we said, okay, this is about ending the armed conflict, but we understand that if we are talking about ending the historic 50-year-old conflict in Colombia, we understand that laying down of the Fox weapons is an absolutely necessary condition, but naturally not a sufficient condition, that we need to do other things, which is why we agreed to talk about rural development, which is why we agreed to talk about political participation, which is why we agreed to talk about the issue of drugs that have been fueling the conflict, and especially, which is why we insisted that we need to talk about the victims of the conflict. So that gave a kind of logic to what we were doing and a narrative within which both sides could live. You create a space where both could breathe. And independently of some kind of philosophical differences, for example, I personally was not in favor of talking about root causes of the conflict in the sense that they might seem justifications for violence. We were prepared to talk about factors that kept the conflict going or sources of violence, if you like, that need to be addressed. And so in the end, we said, look, we don't really need to discuss the philosophical <laughs> issue of whether we believe this is a root cross or an enabling condition or call it what you like. The point is that we both agree we need to talk about victims or we need to talk about the issue of drugs or political participation and, and the deepening of democracy, especially in the peripheral regions of Colombia. So that actually created a space within which we could manage the negotiation. But within that, there were any number of obstacles. Certainly the most difficult thing in the end turned out to be the well-known issue of justice in a peace process, which was extraordinarily complex and difficult. We had to be very creative and patient. The whole negotiation took much longer than expected. That was also a challenge because it ended trying the patience of the Colombian public naturally, but at the same time creating its own kind of momentum. You were negotiating with the FARC, but in a sense, you're also negotiating with Colombian society, knowing what it is that Colombian society is or is not willing to accept in terms of the justice provisions of the agreement. Could you talk a little bit about how, in the end, you were able to come to an agreement with the FARC? Yes, this is actually a subject that to this day is a source of controversy in Colombia, partly also because it goes to the heart of your understanding of what we were doing because the political opposition has always tried to present the peace process simply as an exercise in how to demobilize the FARC. And so they put the question, well, well why, why should anybody else be involved in part of this transitional justice system when this is only just about the FARC? So nobody else is accountable. That's what they say, because they don't believe in the idea of a negotiated solution. They just want a demobilization which would have actually never, ever happened. The reason why this was possible, and let me just 
remind first your listeners what the FARC agreed to. The FARC agreed with us first to set up a really very ambitious, what we call a comprehensive system of truth, justice and reparations, meaning that we set up a special tribunal to judge the most serious crimes. We set up a truth commission to work with the victims in the regions. We set up a special unit to look for the forcefully disappeared. We establish all kinds of commitments in terms of reparations. And the system requires the FARC to go up before this tribunal and tell the truth about the serious crimes may have committed. It requires them also to go before the Truth Commission to do reparations and then to serve those sentences, which are special sentences, and naturally they're not ordinary ones, but still they're very demanding. So it's actually extraordinary that a guerrilla movement would have agreed to that. That had never happened before. Or just a very basic initial agreement that there could not be a blanket amnesty and that some crimes were so serious that needed to be accounted for. So you ask yourself, well, why would a guerrilla agree to that much, which has actually never happened? And part of the answer is because the logic of the peace process was that it was about ending the historic armed conflict, meaning that we had to address the rights of all the victims of the conflict, not just the victims of the FARC, and that everyone who had committed a serious crime in the context of the conflict should also be accountable. So that's the reason why the FARC agreed to this, and that's the way out we found of this extremely complex issue, was making the victims' rights the measure of your response in terms of justice. In terms of the negotiation for the victims' agreement, in other words, the transitional justice agreement, which ultimately encapsulates those provisions you've just referred to, Victims actually had a seat at the negotiating table. Not strictly speaking a seat. We had a problem. I mean, you're talking about challenges. So one challenge was the fact that Havana was a very, very good setting in which to do negotiation because you're isolated. We just work very hard. You go into a conference room every day and then you go back to your house and that's all you do all day. And negotiations are a very, very intense thing. So it was a very good setting and the Cuban government was very supportive as were naturally the Norwegians. But then you have a problem, which is that you are isolated from society. So we had to build channels of communication. So the first thing we did was to ask the UN and the largest public university in Colombia called the Universidad Nacional to help us setting up a conference per point of the agenda at which in Colombia hundreds of people could come and present proposals and they would take all those proposals and turn them into something that was not readable. They would literally just put them together in books and publish them and bring them up to Havana for us to use as material for the negotiations. And so that's what we did with the Rural Development Agreement, where at least 1,500 people turned up at a conference. That's what he did in the case of political participation and drugs. But when we came to victims, we realized that the issue was just too central and too big. Well, first solution was to have more than just one conference in Colombia. We actually had four. We still felt that it was not enough. So um, we ended up organizing a series of visits by delegations of victims directly to Havana, where um, five groups of 12 victims each, so 60 in total over a period of about three months, came to Havana and gave not just testimony, but their own views on what they expected from the peace process, what their thoughts were. So it was a very special combination of a kind of live truth commission, but before 
the sides that were negotiating a peace agreement. And it was very, very intense, often shattering, but also I think gave a great moral strength to the whole exercise of the negotiations because it reminded everyone why it was that we were sitting there. So the negotiations have taken place, the victims' delegations participate, the victims' agreement comes out, of course, ultimately with the difficult question around the justice issue that you've previously talked about. Let's jump to the end of the negotiation, Sergio. The final agreement is signed, and then, of course, the plebiscite comes afterwards, and as they say, the rest is history. Can you take us through that, giving us your perspective? Of course, I don't think it's a surprise that after 50 years of armed conflict and even longer, 100 years or so, that the no vote won. Yes. Well, the first point naturally is to ask oneself, well, why on earth did you want to have a referendum or a plebiscite? And the answer is that from the very beginning, from the secret talks that, that I've been referring to, which were held, as I said, in a sort of safe house in Havana and were sitting there writing on whiteboards on the wall and trying to put together this framework agreement, we agreed that in the point of procedure that there would be some form of referendum well, there's some ambiguity there as to what that meant in the end, but that's what we agreed to in the beginning. And the reason is because somebody might reasonably say, well, to end a war, you don't need to have a popular referendum. Your president is supreme commander of the armed forces, and the commander of the FARC just make the decision to stop the whole thing. And that is true. But because we said, okay, we understand the peace process is about the FARC laying down its weapons and reintegrating to society, but it's also about more than that. It's about changing the conditions that's kept the violence going so it's not start again. There were other issues that touched on third parties and that were of interest to the rest of society, which made us think that the responsible thing to do was to put this before Colombians. That's what we thought then. Naively, some might say, but that, that was a thinking. And also we had this issue that I mentioned of the distance and the danger of being out of touch with, with the Colombian public because we were in Havana for so long. What ended up happening is that we had a campaign which happened a bit of March, but September 2016, which was very similar to what happened in the UK with the Brexit campaign. I will go into details or comments about the sort of communication strategies, but it, it was very similar to what happened in the UK, I think. And we ended up losing by 60,000 votes out of 13.5 million. So that's 0.3 of a percentile. There's still room for a lot of analysis as to why that was the case. And the analysis is complex because it's true that many, many lies were told, but there were also other things that just general rejection, dislike of the FARC, and referendums has always turned against government, so also the government had its own problems by then, and classic thing. But the important thing is not that. The important thing is that once we lost, we said, okay, we lost, so the first thing you do in a democracy is you recognize the result, and you say, we acknowledge, yes, we lost. But the big difference with Brexit is that in the case of Colombia, the referendum or the plebiscite was never seen by the public, especially not by the opposition, as being a kind of binary choice of yes or no, or do we stay in or do we stay out? The opposition always said, no, we are actually for peace, we're even for the agreement, but we have criticisms. They called it yes, but. So we said, okay, you've won. So we were ready to sit down with you and hear your butts, which is what we did. We spent a good part of October talking to them at various scenarios, and, and the whole thing ended in a very formal series of meetings, full week at the Ministry of Interior behind closed doors, 
at the end of October, beginning of November, where we put together all of their comments, together with them, with the representatives of the opposition and the no vote, turned out to be the same thing. The leaders of the no campaign were the political opposition, and almost all of them became then very quickly presidential candidates, still are. And we put together this matrix with the 60 issues on which they had comments. And with that under our arms, we set off for Havana, we had already naturally been talking to the FARC. In fact, immediately after the referendum, we took a plane with Humberto de la Calle and went to Havana to talk to the FARC and say, look, we need to acknowledge we lost and we need to acknowledge we need to make changes to the agreement. There's no other way out. And the FARC, in a great show of maturity, agreed to that. So we went back in November and spent two intense weeks with the FARC, making changes to the agreement according to this matrix of 60 topics. And we managed to change almost all the things that the opposition had demanded except for two, which were impossible. One was to deny the FARC political participation because that's what the peace process is about. So if you say, no, no, you can't participate or first you have to serve a sentence for however long, it just it makes no sense to have a peace process from their point of view. You have to make it compatible. You have to make sure that they participate, but they also respond to victims, which is tricky, but it's possible. And naturally, they were also not going to do what Nogril has done, which is to agree to sort of conditions that are sort of prison-like for the sentences. We actually managed to change everything except the two things. It would have made the peace process impossible. And with that, we came back to Colombia, tried to talk to the opposition again, but even though they acknowledged in private that many things had been changed. In fact, one of the leaders of the opposition told me in private that all the demands had been met or that particular person. In public, the whole thing had been completely politicized and it was impossible to reach an agreement. So the government went ahead and Congress ratified the agreement and we moved on to implementation and FARC disarmed. This is very important because we haven't talked about this. We actually managed to put in place what ended up to be a really an exemplary disarmament process with the help of a special political mission from the UN with a Security Council mandate. That happened over 2017, and nobody would have ever thought in their lives that they would have seen the FARC disarmed, even much less so in eight months, which is what happened. But that was also thanks to almost five years of preparations of talks with the UN, talking with the FARC, because the FARC used to sort of distrust, not possibly even hate the UN. Through the negotiations, through the peace process, we managed to build, again, a space within which the FARC could talk to the UN, understand the importance of doing this by the book, because we need to have the most trustworthy organization and the greatest credibility before the Colombian public so that people would believe in this disarmament process. And it really was done in an exemplary manner, thanks to the UN and especially the Security Council that gave us throughout unanimous support. One of the innovative mechanisms we set up, if I may call it that, was what we call the Gender Commission, which looked at the agreements. So we sent some delegates from the government and the FARC sent their own. What they did was to make sure that everything we had agreed to was in line with a view of gender and rights and that everything was up to the standards that are expected today. It was a good exercise. It was a very serious exercise. It was really a lot of work was done put into this. Stylistically, it was probably not brilliant because it made the agreement even more difficult to read. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think it made it the most gender-conscious agreement one could imagine. On implementation, I mean, that is a very large question. Some bits, I think, have gone well. And the FARC became a political party. They've done everything they 
could do as part of their political transition, even though they didn't do well at all in the elections. They did some acts of public acknowledgement of responsibility, as we call them, but really not enough to show Colombians that they were repentant of all the crimes committed. So the general rejection of the FARC was certainly still there. Obviously, the polarization of the country did not help them very much either. But that bit of the process, I think, has worked well. Creating the basic legal framework for implementation, I think, also went well. We had to pass very complex constitutional amendments through Congress and laws. Not all of the laws have been passed yet, but most of the really fundamental ones, I think, were passed last year with a special mechanism in Congress. So that worked reasonably. I think where we have been weakest is in having a quick enough impact on the ground so that communities see that this is not just about the FARC. The other thing that went very well was the disarmament process and the containment process. But the other side of that coin is that people say, okay, here you are building all these fancy camps for the FARC to disarm in these far-off places. What about us who actually live there as well? Why are we not getting a little electricity plant? And that was a plan for them to get it as well. But... As often happens, governments are slow. Peace processes are all about timing. So there are certainly still risks there, especially because Colombia is a especially challenging environment because we never claimed, as some have said, that the FARC were the only source of violence in Colombia. This massive violence that comes from the whole world of drugs and the illegal economy around the coca fields. So you need to move quickly so you don't have people, especially former combatants, thinking about joining the illegal economy, as some have done. So there's a small but not negligible group of FARC dissidents, and that needs to be paid attention to. And the challenge now is what happens next, because the lot of guarantees and assurances in the agreement for the peace process to move forward. But at the same time, a government that is not keen on implementation has a lot of instruments at its disposal to make sure that things slow down. So just simply by not allocating enough budget and not paying enough attention can really slow down things. On the other hand, the tragedy of Colombia, which explains also part of the referendum result, is that we are really a very divided country between a reasonably developed, in some cases possibly quite highly developed, hardcore of cities and consolidated rural areas. And then there's this great periphery with weak state institutions and the standard thing, which is where the conflict raged and where you have the coca fields and the drug trafficking and so forth. And the people of those regions, which, by the way, all voted massively for the yes side during the plebiscite, I think they are not going to give up that easily. That's my main source of optimism are the people of Colombia and especially of those regions. I think they will, if you like, they will stand up for their rights and they will demand that the agreement be implemented because that was what it was in the end about. It wasn't simply about the FARC. Certainly, ending the violence is extremely important and in itself. Saving lives, including the lives of our own soldiers, was the main motivation. But we always said that the agreement was about much more than simply the FARC disarming. It was about changing the conditions that had kept this violence going in those regions. And that's what the people will expect the next government to do. You've very eloquently detailed to us the process through which the war with the FARC has come to an end. And of course, what we've seen in other contexts elsewhere, Central America, Northern Ireland, of course, many countries on the African continent, is that peace can be made between former adversaries. So former armed actors, 
illegal or legal, very often between political elites. A piece is made. It may be a fragile piece, but it's a piece more than on paper very often. Do you think that Colombians themselves, generally speaking, have come to an understanding that the conflict is over? Do you think that there's an emotional truce between Colombians? It's very difficult to begin to live in a context of so-called peace after you've been in conflict, well, in the case of Colombia, over five decades. Well, remember, we always said from the beginning that it's one thing to stop the armed conflict and another thing to build peace. Do Colombians at large think that they're now at peace? There's no one answer because to those in the cities, life will not have changed much and is basically colored by the political discussion and the polarization. In many regions where there has been real relief and where families no longer have to worry that their children are going to be recruited when they go to school in the morning by an armed group. Even our own military have to worry when they just step out of a battalion. Life is different already, and they do see the difference, which they don't see in the cities. But it's a process you know about in the UK with the Northern Ireland process that is not just an event. It's something you have to work on every day. And the great danger is not just that the next government is not going to support the process, although there's a very serious danger of that, very, very serious, is that society at large is going to grow tired and not want to keep on pushing. And the only way you reach peace as you reach an agreement is if you really push every day. Sergio, thank you so much. This has been an incredibly enriching and interesting conversation. Thank you very much indeed and happy to help.